0: Hello, and welcome to this Freshfields podcast. My name's Alastair Mordant, and today's episode is the fourth in our regular series looking at developments in foreign investment review. This is one of the fastest changing areas of global regulation and a major challenge for any business looking to grow across its borders. If you're interested in finding out more about these issues, as well as listening to this podcast, you can read our report Foreign Investment Monitor, which you'll find on our website at freshfields.com. The page includes a link where you can sign up to be added to our mailing list for future versions of the monitor. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by three colleagues who are going to help me analyze recent FDI developments across the world and provide some practical tips for companies on what they should be doing in response. First up, Michelle Davis, a partner in our London office an expert on the UK's new national security regime.
1: Hi Al, good to be here.
0: Second, Iman Mir, a partner in our Washington DC office and former US government official who previously held a number of senior leadership roles in CFIUS and the US Department of Treasury. Hello. And finally, Felix Roskam Abing, a senior associate in our Amsterdam office and an FDI expert in the EU.
2: Hi Al, very happy to be here.
0: In today's session, we're going to cover a number of issues, including, first, initial impressions of the UK's new National Security and Investment Act. Second, an update on enforcement activity in the US by CFIUS. And finally, a spotlight on limited partners in financial sponsor deals and their relevance in the context of FDI screening. So without further ado, let's dive straight in and start with the new UK screening regime, which came into force in the UK on the 4th of January this year. Michelle, we had discussed the regime on a prior podcast, but it'd be great if you can give us a quick recap about it and the UK government's intentions for it.
1: Thanks, Al. Well, the national security and investment regime introduces for the first time in the UK a mandatory and suspensory notification requirement for certain transactions in 17 strategic sectors with heavy penalties for non-compliance. Importantly, in addition to that mandatory regime, the NSNI Act also grants broad powers to the UK government to call in transactions, including asset acquisitions, that fall below the mandatory thresholds but may still give rise to national security concerns. Now there's been a, a lot of press about the act, and while it is clear and we're seeing this being borne out in practice, that thousands of transactions a year will be caught by the regime. I think it's really important to bear in mind that Bays, which is the government department that sponsors the regime, you know, they have been very clear all along that this regime is not a signal that the UK government are reducing their appetite for foreign investment. I mean, the UK has always been one of the most open economies to foreign investment globally. And it's not a signal that the UK will become more interventionist. Really, they just see this as the UK catching up with its partners, particularly in the Five Eyes uh, partnership, to make sure that they've got a regime that's fit for the purposes of, of protecting UK national security.
0: So I suppose the obvious next question is, now that we're four months or so into the regime, how's it working in practice and is the government delivering on its intentions?
1: So, it's clearly still pretty early days, but, you know, if you think about what the government promised us, they promised us that this was going to be a much slicker, more efficient regime than what we're used to dealing with under the Enterprise Act with very clear deadlines for decisions for investors, very clear rules for which transactions are caught. And so far, it has to be said that we've had a pretty positive experience with the regime. And some of the things that people were concerned about before it kicked off, such as how long would it take to get on the clock? That's all proven to be very efficient. You know, in most transactions, we're seeing deals get on the clock within two working days. And in the vast majority of transactions, we're seeing deals cleared uh, within phase one, and the majority of those being cleared even before the end of the 30 working day period. So, So for those transactions, that don't raise concerns, you know, to be fair, it's all been pretty efficient so far. Less clear is sort of how things are going to work out in those transactions where, you know, the government does call in the transaction for a phase two review. And so it's still very early days, you know, as of the day this podcast being recorded, we haven't seen any final orders or remedies being posed or being you know announced, but we know that there are a few cases where those are in train. Um, but one of the things that I think is you know something for improvement for base is certainly in in those cases where there are potentially issues. I think parties have found a bit of a lack of transparency about the concerns that have been raised. Um, you know, whereas base has been very upfront about the process and how it will work. When you do get a transaction called in. So far, we haven't seen much of an explanation of, you know, why is this being called in? And, you know, that's causing a bit of frustration, I think, at the outset. But, you know, that is only in the small number of transactions that actually cause issues. When it comes to the actual notification form, you know, again, it's all been very efficient. And I think parties are, you know, getting familiar with the regime, particularly frequent users, such that they can navigate it quite quickly.
0: Great. So it sounds like it's sort of so far so good. And what do you think would be the sort of key practical points when you're advising clients uh, to, that you know they need to keep on the radar in relation to this new regime?
1: I mean, I think one of the key points for the uninitiated is the regime is incredibly wide and a very broad range of transactions can fall file of the mandatory notification regime and i think one thing that's come as a surprise to investors who are used to dealing with concepts under the merger control regime the fact that the nsni act is is very technical and the approach to control is not on all fours with what you will see in a merger control regime. So I think that's a bit of a surprise to the uninitiated, as I say. The other thing, the sector definitions are highly technical. And because of this, it means that companies with only very minor activities in the UK, which don't obviously raise national security concerns, can still fall in scope and trigger notification. And, you know, that's just a factor that there are no financial or share of supply thresholds in the Act. One really important thing is that there are really complicated rules in relation to indirect acquisitions. And just the way the legislation is set up, it can be very complicated to work through the analysis and, you know, where the various entities are sitting, what are the levels of control. And sometimes, you know, if you have common agreements or common interests with other investors, you could actually still trip over a filing requirement, even though on the face of it, your shareholding is lower. And I think one of the things that has come as a big surprise to a lot of investors is the fact that actually the transaction is wide enough to capture internal reorgs. So you can have a situation where you're just moving companies around your structure, the ultimate controller remains the same, but you still have to do a national security filing. And given the really severe penalties for missing a filing, you know, in the worst case scenario, criminal penalties, including jail time for executives and, and directors, It's absolutely critical to make sure that you do the right analysis up front and you can make sure that you get the information that you need from the target in order to make sure you're in the right position on the filings.
0: That's great. Thanks, Michelle. Really helpful to get that sort of update and and insights into how the regime's operating in practice. Uh, I wanted to turn now from a new regime to one of the more established and, and active ones. I mean, what's the current enforcement environment in the U.S. under CFIUS like at the moment?
3: Thanks, Al. And, you know, interestingly, there is a lot of commonality between these regimes in terms of the way that you have to think about them. For example, Michelle just mentioned internal reorgs. That's something that we spent a lot of time with clients before the committee on reorgs, where you feel like you're rehashing a review that you've already gone through before. And one would think that, Because the committee has already reviewed a particular organizational structure in the past or a a holding of a U.S. business that the next time around, it should be relatively straightforward, even if there's a required filing. But uh, it's not necessarily the case. And I think there are other themes like that also where there's commonalities. And this has an indication that these aren't regimes that are arising sort of in isolation from each other. The U.S. Department of Defense official recently stated publicly that they have people embedded with other Five Eyes foreign investment review regimes teams, including in the U.K., and that's consistent overall with a much more robust capability that in the United States has been built up over the past couple of years, and, you know, My sense is that even with all of the legal changes, one of the most significant changes over these past couple of years has been this development of a much more robust and substantial review and and enforcement capability. At the Treasury Department, which chairs uh, the CFIUS process, there's over 60 or 70 people that do this full time now. At the Department of Defense, a similar uh, number, and at other agencies, also substantial capabilities. That builds up a certain momentum and inertia and, and you see that in practice. And so we're seeing the committee continue to deepen its resources devoted to identifying and considering transactions that haven't been notified uh, by the parties, whether as a mandatory or a voluntary matter. And they're reaching out to investors, not just from obvious locations like China, but from friendly countries and investors that are actually known to the committee, that have been before the committee and cleared without issue in the past. And similarly, while Chinese transactions are an obvious target for scrutiny, and while Scipius has been looking at transactions even from close allies, it's often in areas where there's sensitive technology or access or information that's driving the analysis. So, it really, as a practical matter, that means that any transaction there needs to be an assessment based upon both the who the investor is, but also based upon what the target is and the sensitivity of the target, because both of them are sufficient basis for CFIUS to apply scrutiny, which is a little bit different than in the past where, where if the investor was familiar or known or from a Five Eyes country, the scrutiny probably wouldn't be quite as high as one might expect today.
0: And what do you think is driving this continued buildup in terms of the capabilities you just mentioned, but, and also the,
3: the breadth of scrutiny? Combination of several factors. First, the continuation of the longstanding concerns over Chinese acquisition of technologies, whether directly from the US companies or these days a lot of scrutiny on potential risks, China risks through companies that are third country companies that are invested in both China and the United States. And if anything, the war in Ukraine has made even more acute the concerns that technology transfer could benefit China in the event of any hostilities over Taiwan, even if you know hopefully not likely to occur, but this the, the, the low probability of that is, and the high consequence of that uh, is driving a lot of CFIUS attention. Second is increased concern over maintaining a technological edge over China, which is a relatively new theme over the past few years for CFIUS, given the military and economic risks of falling behind. And finally, the effects of the pandemic have given increased visibility the concerns over supply insecurity and dependence on foreign capacity for critical safety and economic inputs. In fact, the US government is thinking about what other defensive tools it needs in its toolbox to address this range of concerns beyond increased domestic investment into critical capabilities. And as we discuss in this latest issue of the Foreign Investment Monitor, both Congress and the Biden administration are looking closely at the establishment of an outbound investment review mechanism particularly focusing on capital investment into China that would have the effect of exacerbating the range of concerns that I just mentioned. And while that concern over purely financial investment is relatively new in the context of outbound investment, the U.S. has for some time now considered even on the inbound side, whether an ostensibly passive investor may have insight or influence as a result of that investment and that may itself warrant additional scrutiny.
0: And Picking up on that last point about passive investment, it seems to me that we're seeing an increasing interest from a number of regulators into the nature and involvement of limited partners in FDI screening. Felix, I want to bring you in here. Can you walk us through some of the key issues around limited partners that financial sponsors may not fully be considering yet?
2: Yeah, happy to, Al. Uh, I think there's a number of issues that are important to consider because not all limited partners are created equal in the eyes of FDI screening mechanisms and regulators. And as such, regulators may seek disclosures and assurances about certain limited partners, but not about others. And look, the bottom line is that in the eyes of the regulator, at least, a limited partner, unfortunately, doesn't mean limited risk. And financial sponsors should certainly keep this in mind at any transaction. So I think the key issues to think about are disclosure obligations, jurisdictional consequences, and substantive considerations.
0: And can you maybe elaborate a little bit on each of those three issues and the sort of specific implications for
2: doing deals? Absolutely. On disclosure, I think, depending on the FDI regime, a regulator may ask for limited amounts of information, but also equally for quite extensive amounts of information regarding the ownership and control chain of the acquirer. And that does include for financial sponsors, information about limited partners. Now, in in some jurisdictions in Europe, for instance, there is a requirement to disclose any government interest above a certain threshold. Often government interests are in the form and shape of uh, sovereign wealth funds as a limited partner in, in the overall fund. Now, in contrast, in the US, there is a requirement to disclose any government interest, regardless of the nature and size. And now we've we've also seen instances where regulators ask for quite extensive amounts of information and require quite extensive disclosure to confirm that uh, limited partners are truly passive investors, which may include having to disclose any limited partnership agreements, side letters, minutes of advisory committee meetings and and even certain internal documents of the limited or the general partner, I should say, and general manager. And now financial sponsors should certainly be aware of these potentially very extensive disclosure obligations before entering into a transaction. On the jurisdictional side of things, limited partners may actually also have an impact on jurisdiction and may actually have filing obligations of their own For instance, in in the German and Italian FDI regimes, those regimes apply to acquisitions of about 10% or greater, though in Germany, of course, there are exceptions if limited partners don't hold any specific voting interests, especially if limited partners directly co-invest in a certain investment in a portfolio company that will be relevant for jurisdiction and may give rise to separate filing obligations in turn, resulting in an impact on deal certainty. It's something to certainly keep in mind when entering into a transaction. I'll jump in here and note that CFIUS
3: also will dig deeply in to ascertain whether or not the limited partners have any rights, even as narrow as the right to object to the removal of the GP, that could form the basis for finding control under CFIUS's low standard and, and therefore give CFIUS the ability to review a transaction based upon that limited partner's interest. That said, CFIUS has laid out a roadmap for U.S.-managed funds to avoid triggering CFIUS jurisdiction, even if a foreign person sits on the Limited Partner Advisory Committee.
2: Yeah, and on the substantive considerations I mentioned before, I think it's important to realize that limited partners can impact that substantive analysis as well, even when they are truly passive. Indeed, in, in light of the current and past geopolitical developments, we've seen an uptick in the scrutiny of limited partners from certain jurisdictions. And certain FDI regimes may require safeguards or even remedies to alleviate any potential concerns by regulators, including extending as far as carving out certain limited partners or co-investors from investments, or even outright imposing a prohibition if the involvement of the limited partner or if there's any concerns about the limited partner which cannot be mitigated.
1: I mean, just to to jump in from a UK perspective as well, you know, there is a specific question in in the UK mandatory form that if there is a a governmental investor or someone acting on their behalf, it doesn't really matter. You know, they could have a very tiny amount below the usual 5% threshold in the acquirer, but you need to disclose details of that interest. And, you know, under the UK regime, it's incredibly broad as to what they can basically ask for any information they want. And we've certainly seen historic cases where, you know, there have been some requirements put on information disclosure to limited partners. So it is definitely something that the UK regime is alive to consistent with the other regimes that, that you've mentioned.
3: And on the U.S. side, there is precedent for the committee taking action with respect to LPs. In one case, even the blocking of a transaction where the partnership essentially had one limited partner that was a Chinese entity. And, you know, as a general matter, and it's important for financial sponsors when they're raising funds to, to think about who their limited partners are and what reputational impact that may have when that fund is before any of the regulators. And, you know, obviously certain types of investors will be more sensitive with respect to certain uh, types of uh, businesses and technologies and sectors. And it would make sense to consider the sectoral focus, if any, of a fund when uh, considering what investors to invite into the fund.
0: And just picking up on the various different disclosure obligations, uh, is there anything that financial sponsors should bear in mind when Uh, negotiating, you know, their contractual obligations and under the SPA?
2: Absolutely. I think it's it's very important to consider, uh, especially the disclosure obligations or even remedies, trajectories, etc. at the beginning when entering into a transaction, however unlikely it may seem at the beginning. Because including, for instance, a blanket, a hell or high water provision may not be appropriate, could have far reaching consequences. But equally, the cooperation obligations may also have far-reaching consequences when, under the SPA, which tend to be especially in the current market uh, circumstances very seller-friendly, and may include far-reaching cooperation obligations on the acquirer. They may include the obligations to send any copies of any disclosures made to the regulator to the its counsel, or they may require the the acquirer sorry not to submit any thing to the regulator before having received the prior written approval from the seller before making that submission. And that could obviously have serious consequences if the regulator starts asking about quite detailed and extensive information regarding limited partners or the financial sponsor, which certainly you should be aware of when entering into the transaction and make sure there's appropriate carve outs for that type of obligations. So I think Bottom line, it's quite important to uh, think about the worst case at the beginning when contracting to accommodate for any of those, however unlikely it may seem, but any of those uh, circumstances happening throughout the FDI screening procedure.
0: Well, look, on, on that very practical and insightful note, I think it's probably a good place to draw this podcast to a close. So th- thank you all very much indeed. Thanks to Michelle, Iman, and Felix. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And I hope our listeners have too. As I mentioned at the outset, if you're interested in further information on developments in foreign investment review, then please visit our website at freshfields.com, where you'll find our latest foreign investment monitor and keep an eye out for future editions of the monitor and of this podcast. Thanks very much.